0: Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the unique, profound dysfunction at the heart of the train wreck that is the Trump administration in general, and in particular, their response to the coronavirus. Plus, we explore the death cult that is the group of people still supporting the president. Now, you know, as we've been doing, we've sort of been checking in at the beginning of episodes. I, um, you know, things are the same. Everything's the same as it has been when I've checked in before. What is, uh, what is wearing on me is my inability to maintain a schedule. Uh, not not just day to day, but I mean like the show has been suffering from uh, just an irregular schedule. And my hope is that you don't mind. Uh, for me, it just makes it hard to try to get a grasp on my day-to-day. So, uh, you know, what, what I what I hope I've been doing is making up for the lack of consistency in a schedule with sheer uh, volume and density of interesting content, and that is absolutely what I have for you today. This episode is not just enormous, but incredibly dense. This is basically a, a, a special, uh, you know, a, a double album episode, and it's not like the B-side, you know, could be thrown away, or that, you know, Jay just got lazy doing his curation and and should have pared it down more. No, no, no. Uh, This is an enormous, dense, interesting show, so strap in. Uh, I think you're going to like it. Clips today come from On The Media, Deconstructed, Democracy Now!, Frontline, The Bugle, The Al Franken Show, The Chauncey DeVega Show, The Michael Brooks Show, and Point of Inquiry.
1: It was a horrifying week of widespread death.
2: Tonight, coronavirus cases over 2 million worldwide. In the U.S., the death toll now topping 32,000.
1: But it was, in some ways, an ordinary week in Donald Trump. His threat to send Congress packing.
3: I will exercise my constitutional authority to adjourn both chambers of Congress.
1: His claims of absolute power over the states.
3: When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be.
1: His scapegoating of the World Health Organization for his own February inaction.
3: The delays the WHO experienced in declaring a public health emergency cost valuable time, tremendous amounts of time. More time was lost in the delay it took to get a team of international experts in to examine the outbreak, which we wanted to do, which they should have done.
1: His Friday tweets inciting protesters to, his word, liberate the blue states enforcing social distancing rules and perhaps most predictably, spinning revisionist claims about his limited travel bans, which he says refute the charges of incompetence swirling around him.
3: I saved tens of thousands, maybe hundreds oh, of thousands of lives
4: by hurting All coffee.
1: of this playing out live in his evening briefings before a press corps, which till now has been largely unable to penetrate the presidential fog before being insulted or raged at and then cut off.
5: What do you say The Americans who are scared, though? I guess nearly 200 dead, 14,000 who are sick, millions, as you witnessed, who are scared right now. What do you say to Americans who are watching you right now
3: who are scared? Uh, I say that you're a terrible reporter. That's what I say. Go
6: right ahead. I think terrible. it's a very
3: nasty question. But then on Monday,
1: something happened. CBS News correspondent Paula Reed managed a sustained barrage of questions about what the administration chose not to do for the entire month of February.
3: I said in January. Video has a
0: gap On January 30th. What did your administration do in February with the time that your travel ban thought A lot.
3: A lot. And in fact, we'll give you a list what we did. In fact, part of it was up there. We did a lot. Look, look, you know, you're a fake. You know that your whole network, the way you cover it is fake. And most of you and not all of you, but the people are wise to you. That's why you have a a lower approval rating than you've ever had before. Times probably three.
1: McKay Coppins is staff writer at The Atlantic. He's been analyzing the pivot by the president to the latest revision of contemporaneous history. McKay, welcome back. Thanks for having me. Now, the last time you were on, a little over a month ago, you said that reality would assert itself, the truth would out, that you cannot spin your way out of
7: a pandemic. How's that prediction
1: looking right about
7: now? <laughs> Well, in a way, I think it has happened in the sense that a month or so ago, the president and his right-wing media allies were still saying that the coronavirus was no big deal. The media was overreacting to it and Democrats were just playing politics with it. That was the narrative back then. Now we've reached a point where... Tens of thousands of Americans have been killed. Hundreds of thousands have gotten sick. It's effectively shut down the United States economy. So the president and his coalition have had to pivot their spin, come up with a new narrative. One that makes what's going on now look like their victory. Exactly. The new message coming out of the White House and the conservative media is that he was actually prophetic, that Unlike the media and Democrats, he saw the threat on the horizon when nobody else did. It's essentially a narrative that is diametrically opposed to reality, but that hasn't stopped them from pushing it pretty aggressively.
1: The president's rhetoric hinges on his January 31st decision to limit flights from China. Here's what his chief media proxy, Sean Hannity, had to say about that. The president's China
8: and European travel ban... I predict will go down as the single most consequential decision in history. That's not political. So
7: what really happened? The president did make this decision as the severity of the outbreak in Wuhan was becoming clear in January, and he got some blowback for it. But if you talk to experts about what this decision amounted to, they will say, first of all, that this was not a travel ban. It was a travel restriction. There still was plenty of travel to and from the United States and China. 40,000 people, if I recall. Yeah, That's right. And a lot of skeptics, both on the right and the left, frankly, will say that this was essentially a token measure. While this travel restriction bought the United States time, that time was then squandered throughout February and early March. What this time should have been used to do was to implement a national testing infrastructure, to acquire necessary medical supplies, to basically brace the U.S. healthcare system for a flood of sick people. And instead, the president spent that time saying that this was no big deal, that that action that he had taken had effectively saved the country from an outbreak.
1: It's not just the president. In preparation for the November election, the Republican Party has been cultivating the same narrative about Trump action, about Democratic obstruction and, and media fear-mongering. There was a
7: push poll in Texas. Not just Texas, but I spoke to a woman in Texas who late last month said that she got this strange phone call from a woman asking if she could administer a poll about the press's coverage of the president. And she said yes, and she gave her answers, and then the voice went on to express frustration with the way that the media had been so unfair to President Trump. And this woman who I spoke to actually believed that she was talking to a live voice. It took her a a little bit of time to realize that it was a (laughs) a robocall. When I looked into it, I found that this call had gone to 120,000 numbers at the end of March, right around the time that shelter-in-place orders were going into effect across the country, and that it actually came from the National Republican Congressional Committee there
1: was also an attempt not just to overwhelm, but erase history. In your latest piece, you call it memory holing.
7: The Trump campaign has started to send cease and desist letters to local TV stations that air a specific attack ad from a liberal super PAC that highlights Trump's comment where he said that, all the hype around the coronavirus was a hoax. You remember he said this at the end of February uh, during a rally. The campaign's position is that the attack ad in question takes his comments out of context and that it's actually defamatory. You know, if you actually talk to fact-checkers, they'll say it's a little bit more complicated, his comments weren't totally clear. In any case, the political purpose of this is clear, which is they are trying to force TV stations to remove an ad reminding people of this comment. And in general, they've been extremely aggressive about pushing back against any reporter who brings up this comment. In fact, after my story was published this week, the official pro-Trump super PAC, America First, went after me on Twitter saying that this was the media performing revisionist history, that the media hadn't been taking the coronavirus seriously until mid-March, which is conveniently right around the time the president started to take it seriously.
1: Well, the uh, the Nasdaq is doing poorly, but we're definitely in a bull market for projection. <laughs> I want I want to get back to the daily press briefings. On Monday, Trump did in fact do something as he likes to say never before seen in the history of the country for the whole world hanging on to the latest news from the COVID-19 front lines.
7: He showed essentially a campaign video. It was very strange. It began with this on screen text that said, the media minimized the risk from the start, and then proceeded to show a series of clips of people on CNN and other networks from January downplaying the likelihood that there would be a really serious coronavirus outbreak in the US concerned about the coronavirus because they're hearing a lot of news about it right now. But the reality is, comparing it to the flu, for example, it's not even close to being at that stage.
4: How worried should Americans be about coronavirus? Coronavirus is not going to cause
7: a major issue in the United States. These were sort of cherry-picked clips, but this is essentially the culmination of weeks of propagandizing around this. Recall... This was at a briefing of the White House Coronavirus Task Force. These briefings are supposed to be providing information to the public about this ongoing public health crisis. And instead, it was turned into this almost Orwellian display of uh, propaganda and revisionist history that is clearly aimed at benefiting him politically.
5: The threat that Trump poses continues to pose to the lives of people in this country right now as I speak. The blood that continues to be on his hands every day as more and more Americans contract the virus and die from it. Don't be fooled by the change of tone which we heard at his daily political rally sorry, his daily White House press briefing on Tuesday, where he very somberly and soberly talked about how bad the coming weeks will be and held up charts showing the death toll could hit 240,000, even if the social distancing measures that he himself wanted to lift until the other day, even if they were to stay in place. What Trump's been doing this past week, pretending to take things seriously with his blasé talk of 100,000 to 200,000 deaths from the coronavirus in the U.S., more than double the American death toll in the Vietnam War, almost half as many Americans who died in World War II, and saying, well, that's better than 2.2 million deaths we would have had if I did nothing. All of that is simply him moving the goalposts, trying to make you forget that just a week ago, he wanted churches open and packed for Easter. He wanted people back at work, and he was still comparing the impact of the
3: coronavirus to the flu. We lose thousands and thousands of people a year to the flu. We don't turn the country off, I mean, every year. And yet, here he was on Tuesday evening. A lot of people have said, a lot of people have thought about it. Write it out. Don't do anything. Just write it out and think of it as the flu. But it's not the flu. It's vicious. Don't be gaslit by this
5: president. Remember, no matter the lies, the facts are the facts the reason he has blood on his hands, the reason the US is looking at such a crazy high death toll right now, even with social distancing measures in place and testing ramped up, is because of him. His negligence, his incompetence, his conspiracy theories, and denialism, and coronavirus trutherism, his deliberate, willful wasting of the months of January, February, and half of March. Never forget South Korea and the United States had their first confirmed COVID-19 case on the same day back in January. South Korea took the threat seriously and by the start of March had tested 100,000 people for the virus. The United States under Trump didn't take it seriously and had tested just 1,000 people by the start of March. The South Koreans tried to flatten the curve Trump went off to play golf and hold rallies with his base. He ignored warnings from his intelligence agencies and top scientists and health officials. And when he did publicly comment on the coronavirus, it was to tell us that it was all under control. It was locked down. It was contained. It was going to disappear miraculously. It was one guy from China. It was such a small and tiny and irrelevant issue, which had been turned into a political hoax, he said, by the Democrats. In
3: fact, on February 27th, just over a month ago, He said this. When you have 15 people, and the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero, uh, that's a pretty good job we've done. (laughs) Now he says
5: 100,000 American deaths wouldn't just be fine with him, they'd actually be evidence
3: of his success. His success. So you're talking about 2.2 million deaths, 2.2 million people from this. And so... If we could hold that down, as we're saying, to 100,000, it's a horrible number. Maybe even less, but to 100,000. So we have between a and 200,000. Uh, we all together have done a very good job. A very good job.
5: Kill me now. Even Dr. Anthony Fauci, his top scientific expert on the coronavirus, even he kind of... Semi admitted at the briefing on Tuesday that fewer Americans might be dead right now if Trump had taken things seriously back in January and done the testing
1: that was needed. What would the models have looked like that Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci showed us if we had started the social distancing guidelines sooner in February or January? Please, I don't mean to put you on the spot. No, we understand, but, but we but can't answer Americans it but, yeah,
8: until saying, saying we see If we had that.
9: started this sooner, we might not have 100,000 to 200,000 Americans dying. If there was no virus in the background, there was nothing to mitigate.
3: If there was virus there that we didn't know about, then the answer to your question is probably yes.
5: Fauci later said he was worried about that answer of his being taken out of context. But of course, he's also clearly worried about being fired by President Trump. You have a narcissistic, egomaniacal, megalomaniacal, amoral, compassion-free, soulless, self-obsessed, pretend president who from the very beginning put his own personal and political interests above the welfare of the nation he's supposed to be leading, over and above protecting American lives as his job description demands. I mean, just listen to Trump. He says it all out in the open. He says the quiet part loud. Why didn't he want to let sick Americans off of the Grand Princess cruise ship?
3: Because I like the numbers being where they are. I don't need to have the numbers double because of one ship. Why didn't he get urgent resources,
5: masks, gowns, ventilators, to the governors of struggling
3: states like Washington and Michigan? I say, Mike, don't call the governor of Washington. You're wasting your time with him. Don't call the woman in Michigan. Well, it doesn't make any difference what happens. Call the governor of Washington? No, no, you know what I say? If they don't treat you right, I don't
5: call. He's literally letting Americans die because of his ego. And especially Americans, by the way, in blue states, in states that didn't vote for him. It's beyond sociopathic. And of course, he has form on this. Trump has a track record of letting Americans in places he doesn't care about die. Remember Puerto Rico? 3,000 Americans dead because of his incompetence and ignorance.
3: The response and recovery effort probably has never been seen for something like this. This is an island surrounded by water, big water, ocean water. And because of comments like this. Now, I hate to tell you, Puerto Rico, but you've thrown our budget a little out of whack because we've spent a lot of money on Puerto Rico. And because he tried
5: to divert essential humanitarian aid money away from Puerto Rico and towards red states, like Texas and Florida instead. When it comes to the coronavirus, he's doing it all again, just on a nationwide level. Florida gets all the supplies it needs, New York doesn't. And just a few days ago, he was even suggesting that nurses in New York were stealing all the face masks from the hospitals.
3: Something's going on, and you ought to look into it as reporters. Where are the masks going? Are they going out the back door?
0: This ad is a warning. Our democracy is under attack from the U.S. Supreme Court. In the middle of a deadly global pandemic, people across Wisconsin were planning on voting absentee to keep themselves and their families safe. But the night before the election, five Republican justices on the Supreme Court told thousands of people they would have to choose between risking their lives and forfeiting their right to vote. The Supreme Court favoring Republican interests over our democracy is nothing new. They gutted the Voting Rights Act, they invited billionaires and corporations to spend and unlimited amounts trying to influence elections. They gave a green light to gerrymandering voter ID laws and voter roll purges. Now, a progressive movement is rising up to fight back because it's quite possible the Wisconsin case won't be the last 2020 showdown over voting rights to be settled in the courts and we simply can't trust this court to put aside partisan views and protect people's right to vote. Our courts are becoming too political and it's time to say enough. Learn more about how you can join the fight by visiting demandjustice.org/best That's demandjustice.org/best
10: We begin today's show looking at what led us to this point. In a minute we'll be joined by the lead author of an explosive exposé in the New York Times headlined He could have seen what was coming: Behind Trump's failure on the virus. But first, we go to this video, which is called Trump's Coronavirus Calendar. It was produced by The Recount, capturing the months of downplaying and denial before Trump pivoted to coronavirus crisis mode. It starts on January 22nd.
3: We have it totally under control, it's one person coming in from China. We think we have it very well under control. We pretty much shut it down coming in from China. You know, in April, supposedly, it dies with the hotter weather. When it gets warm uh, historically, that has been able to kill the virus. People are getting better. They're all getting better. And the 15 within a couple of days is going to be down to close to zero. It's going to disappear. One day, it's like a miracle. It will disappear. And you'll be fine. Uh, They're going to have vaccines, I think, relatively soon. Not only the vaccines, but the therapies. Therapies is sort of an the Word for cure. We're talking about very small numbers in the United States. Our numbers are lower than just about anybody. It's really working out and a lot of good things are going to happen. And we are responding with great speed and professionalism. It's going to go away. Yeah, no, I don't take responsibility at all. Mm-hmm. We're going to all be great. We're going to be so good. This came up, it we came up so suddenly. Yeah. This is a pandemic. I felt it was a pandemic long before it was called a pandemic. All you had to do is look at other countries. The coronavirus. You know that, right? <laughs> coronavirus. New hoax. We're 15 people in this massive country, and because of the fact that we went early, we went early, we could have had a lot more than that. We're doing great. Our country is doing so great.
10: That montage of President Trump was produced by The Recount. This is how the New York Times began its investigation into Trump's failure to respond to the threat of the coronavirus. Quote Any way you cut it, this is going to be bad. A senior medical adviser at the Department of Veterans Affairs, Dr. Carter Metcher, wrote on the night of January 28th in an email to a group of public health experts scattered around the government and universities. He goes on, the projected size of the outbreak already seems hard to believe, unquote. A week after the first coronavirus case had been identified in the United States, and six long weeks before President Trump finally took aggressive action to confront the danger the nation was facing, a pandemic that is now forecast to take tens of thousands of American lives, Dr. Metcher was urging the upper ranks of the nation's public health bureaucracy to wake up and prepare for the possibility of far more drastic action. Quote, you guys made fun of me screaming to close the schools, he wrote to the group, which called itself Red Dawn, an inside joke based on the 1984 movie about a band of Americans trying to save the country after a foreign invasion. Metcher goes on, now I'm screaming, close the colleges and universities, unquote. He was hardly a lone voice throughout January as Mr. Trump repeatedly played down the seriousness of the virus and focused on other issues. An array of figures inside his government from top White House advisors to experts deep in the cabinet departments and intelligence agencies identified the threat, sounded alarms, and made clear the need for aggressive action. Those are the first few paragraphs of this remarkable exposé in The New York Times. For more on how Trump was slow to absorb the scale of the risk and to act accordingly, we're joined by the lead author of that exposé, Eric Lipton, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist investigative reporter for The New York Times. Together with a number of other Times reporters, he wrote this in-depth piece headlined How headlined, he could have seen what was coming behind Trump's failure on the virus. His follow-up piece, the Red Dawn emails, eight key exchanges on the faltering response to the coronavirus. Eric Lipton, welcome back to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. So, take us back to that time, and then we'll talk about why this is so significant today. I mean, reflected in the fact that, as we speak today, the U.S. has surpassed any country's death toll in the world. Take us back to those warnings, those first early warnings that scientists and members of his government were uh,
11: issuing.
8: Actually, I think you need to go back way before January of 2020, and you go back to way back to 2006, believe it or not, and you go back to the Bush administration, when it was during the Bush administration of, of George W. Bush that there were key advisors to President Bush, who realized that it was only a matter of time before a significant infectious disease came to the United States, like it happened in, you know, shortly in, in after World War I, and that and was going to cause widespread illnesses and deaths, and that the United States was not properly prepared for it. And so it was in 2006 that the United States designed a comprehensive pandemic plan which has two essential stages and the stages are containment and mitigation and the first stage is containment in which you attempt to essentially like this the word sounds you attempt to contain the infection and prevent it from spreading and you do that by you know preventing people who are ill from coming to the United States with a, a you know or or if someone is ill, you do what's called contract contact tracing in which you identify anyone that's had contact with that individual and you and you and you isolate them until they become better so that you just like it happened in China after the, the number of cases began to explode. So that's containment. But at a certain point, It becomes there's community spread and and once you have community spread, then you need to switch to mitigation in which you take steps to to try. There is no vaccine there. And it's called they actually another term for mitigation is non-pharmaceutical interventions, NPIs, they call it. And, And the biggest issue here. Was on day one in January of of 2020, Carter Metcher, who was a physician, a doctor that works at the Veterans Administration, was already, when he's talking about closing colleges and universities, he's talking about NPIs, these non-pharmaceutical interventions, or mitigation. He's already anticipating that this is going to be necessary. And and that's the, the most important thing that we have to look back on in the United States right now, is that when did they move from containment to mitigation, and did they move soon enough? And the answer is they did not move soon enough to mitigation. And the result is that more people are dying and there are more illnesses than, than would have been necessary if they had shifted to mitigation sooner. And I, that, that's the point that, that Dr. Metcher was making in January of 2020 was we need to be prepared to move to mitigation as soon as there is sufficient evidence that community spread has started. And, and if you want to understand the biggest failure that is consequential in the United States, it was the slowness with which we moved to mitigation.
10: So, let's go to the so-called Red Dawn string of emails, in which infectious disease specialists shared their concerns about the coronavirus very early on. Um, actually, this one was March 13th. The former advisor to Presidents Bush and Obama, uh, infectious disease specialist James Lawler—I think he was at the University of Nebraska—wrote, quote, CDC is really missing the mark here. By the time you have substantial transmission, it's too late. It's like ignoring the smoke detector and waiting for your whole house to be on fire before um, uh, you call um, the fire department. Um, if you can comment—and go back even further, because his own people, Trump's own people, like uh, Navarro, like um, Azar, Um, were warning, sounding the alarms in January. In fact, intelligence agencies were saying a pandemic is about to explode on the global scene.
8: Right. Well, again, it's like the thing about uh, mitigation or non-pharmaceutical interventions is it's a very simplistic you know it's it's like you would think we're we're such a uh, we're so modern we're so advanced in our science that that we would have to resort to things like closing of schools and businesses and social distancing which seems so crude because you would think there'd be some treatment or some scientific method but unfortunately the reality is in with viruses that which the the population has no resistance to and and that there's no treatment for it, it going back to you know to the plague. Uh, there really is no solution other than uh, I- forced upon isolation. And so uh, again, when 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 uh, Dr. James Lawler from University of Nebraska, who was on the National Security Council during the um, Bush administration as well, and participated in the drafting of that 2006 pandemic plan, and then became an advisor to President Obama on pandemic preparations, what he was again was upset about with the CDC was, and the CDC in March said that it questioned the effectiveness of shutting down schools in the United States. That made these pandemic experts so frustrated and so angry because, again, the fire alarm was going off. They have a very scientific method, these these pandemic infectious disease doctors where they have. There's a there's a there's like a, a moment when there's a the first death occurs from the date that the first death occurs. You have a certain amount of time to institute mitigation, non-pharmaceutical interventions. If you don't do that in that in that small window. The number of deaths that are going to occur. And it's basically it's a, it's an equation. You can you can show how many deaths will happen if you don't pull the, the switch on mitigation uh, by a certain date. I mean, and they they and they knew what that date was. And Now, it's not as if you needed to do national mitigation all at once. You didn't. You needed to do it by hotspot when you had the first death in a community or a certain number of infectious cases. Then you needed to say, boom, time to institute NPI's social distancing and that, and the, the problem is that the, what these doctors told me when I interviewed them is that the governors who really have the power to do that, the governors are, you know, it's hard for a governor to get out in front when there's one death in a state the size of, you know, uh, Washington state or Oregon or California, when there's a, a single death or a, a handful of infections. It's very hard for the governor to tell the citizens of his or her state that we need to shut down the economy on our own. It, it needs a federal official to come out and say, this must happen. You know, and now they don't actually have the power to do that. The the president or the surgeon general or the the, you know, the head of the CDC. But they have the the the, the kind of the, the platform to call for such a step. And that's what had to happen. And that's what the HHS, the Health and Human Services, wanted the president to do in February. And the president was not willing to do that. And so it, it sat for several weeks. And then it had it was up to the governors one at a time to make the move. And some of them did it early, like California and and did it early. New York did it later uh, because they they didn't have the federal guidance and, and kind of backing to to say, now move, do it.
11: You've been doing so many interviews lately, as you mentioned, but the other day one really got your attention, Stephen Morrison. Why was that?
12: You know, Stephen Morrison is a, a global health uh, policy expert. He is with the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, which is a well-respected nonpartisan think tank in Washington. And last year uh, he headed up a project to put together a report um and his report on the inevitability of a pandemic striking uh, the planet uh, and the U.S., of course, uh, was quite prescient. And uh, our, in our conversation, I was struck by the recommendations that he made and how much foresight there was in the report that he finished and published in late November of 2019.
11: So that gets published, and what kind of response does he get at the time? Well,
12: he talks about a pre-brief that took place with administration officials, and he said he was met with silence.
13: I think silence speaks for itself. I think that, you know, they didn't want to get into an argument where they couldn't very easily win. And so uh, we just sort
12: of cordially agreed
13: to, to move on.
12: They just didn't take seriously the recommendations that we were making," he told me. In hindsight, that's quite alarming. the The cost of right. preparedness is minuscule compared to the cost that we're now facing. So immediately, you felt that this is what you feared the most.
13: And I was not alone. I I was not alone. This this was being voiced by uh, many of the experts. Uh, who were watching this closely, including those at CDC that I was in touch with.
12: So so you were, it's fair to say, very worried at this point.
13: Yes, I was quite worried and watching very carefully to figure out the true gravity of this and figure out how quickly were we going to see a test developed because the Chinese, they made their declaration to WHO December 31st, began to share uh, the genetic details data, around January 10th, developing vaccines, developing antivirals, and developing tests. So the race was on.
11: When Morrison was talking to you about those moments in January when he was starting to see how the administration was handling the coronavirus, what was going through his head and his colleague's head about what the U.S. government should be doing?
12: Well, he thought that somebody should be in charge. Somebody should be taking control of this situation, and somebody should be ringing some alarm bells. Um, And he just wasn't he he wasn't seeing that at the level of the White House, um, you didn't have a
13: directorate, you didn't have a senior personality with gravitas dedicated to leading on this issue who could have pulled the parties together and gotten the president's attention more readily. There were multiple problems across our government in the system of government structurally in which you had the alarm bells going off, but you did not have concerted action happening with speed and coherence
12: uh, connecting to the president in the way that it should. There just wasn't um, anybody at home. Uh, You know, it wasn't until late January that the White House task force uh, was formed to take this on. But by this time, the virus was was everywhere. Uh, I talked to another official Uh, who sat down with a bunch of administration officials for a dinner. And he was raising these questions in January. And all they were talking about was uh, closing the border with China. And he was saying, look, guys, we've got to do a lot more than closing the border. This is already here. By contrast, in South Korea, they had four confirmed cases of COVID-19. And they called an emergency meeting, gathered all private sector and public sector people together and declared an emergency, called for massive testing. And they had the ability to do that. And they had people trained as to how to administer these tests. They had all of that in place.
11: So I know that Morrison identified a really particular moment, the disbanding of the pandemic office. Can you talk a bit about that?
12: Yeah, in May of 2018, um, the national security advisor in the White House, John Bolton, decided that he wanted to reorganize the office and how things were run. And so he decided to move uh, this office out of the White House, disband it, really, and dismiss its director, Admiral Ziemer, Tim Ziemer um he was uh, he was dismissed and other people that were involved in that office were dispersed to other places and it was basically thought that it would be better to put this kind of capacity into the health and human services department and that really was in his view and what he says i mean the the first recommendation of the report is that that office needed to be restored. And they published this report uh, last November. But of course, it wasn't restored.
13: This was a serious mistake. And we raised it in the report that we put out, and we raised it in many other fora. And the argument that I think was most powerful was to say, uh, this is an area of exceptional vulnerability. We live in an era uh, in which we're seeing increasing rapidity and increasing velocity and increasing impacts of these new pathogens uh coming at us and the idea that you would disband your capacity willfully at the white house aware of the the developments of the last two decades which were convincingly that we needed to be prepared and far better prepared on a consistent and sustained and coherent basis we were not alone in voicing discontent an alarm
12: that such a step would be taken. And the importance of that is that when something strikes, you need somebody in the White House who ha- who's close to the president and who has the ability to coordinate all the different agencies within the government to respond, and that just was missing. So you had this sort of... Uh, Uh, you know, bifurcated response with the CDC, the FDA, HHS, everybody doing things separately, but with nobody in charge coordinating the response.
11: Right. So the pandemic office is closed. It's recommended to open. Nothing happens. And so then there is a critical breakdown in communication in early January that Morrison was pointing out to you. Can you can tell us a bit more about that crucial moment in January?
12: Well, in January, this virus is spreading um, in China. And this uh, information had gotten to the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Secretary Azar. Uh, and this was, you know, around the very beginning of January. He can't get a meeting with the president. Finally, he gets an appointment almost three weeks later. And this is the story that Morrison tells.
13: The president was not reached by Secretary Azar until January 18th, so there was quite the long delay. Uh, Secretary Azar was the designated lead under the National Biodefense Strategy on this matter, and so he took it up and he began pressing to get in to see the president, but it wasn't until January 18th that, that he did that.
12: And in the end, Azar never even got a meeting. It
13: was just a phone call. And the president's first concern at that time was to talk about e-cigarettes.
12: The president is concerned about vaping and wants to talk about that.
13: The impeachment process was the overwhelming distraction and preoccupation in this period. And Secretary Azar was having a hard time conveying the gravity of the situation to the president.
12: And when he gets to talking about the coronavirus, um, you know, he doesn't really feel like he's getting the full attention of the president.
11: Marty, tell me a little bit more about Azar and what his response has been in general.
12: Rainey, I'm not sure we know yet exactly. There are those um, in Washington who say he could have done a lot more than he did. And, of course, that's an accusation that's being leveled at a lot of people Mm. in Washington across a number of agencies. Uh, some have even suggested that if Azar really wanted to get to the president sooner, he could have done that. So it's unclear. And, th- and that's what we're looking at in our report as to who was responsible, who's accountable for the kinds of fiascos on testing and supplies um, among the agencies.
11: Marty, I'm trying to understand from Morrison's point of view, what is this miscommunication or lack of communication actually in early January? What kind of consequence could that have had?
12: I mean, Morrison believes that uh, that had huge consequence, that had there been a coordinated response uh, from the White House uh, where someone would have been in charge of coordinating all the responses at every level of government, uh, it would have saved hundreds or if not thousands of lives.
14: I mean, I don't understand. Can he technically overrule? Can the federal government do that, like state by state?
15: Well, so uh, I mean, the, the, you know, one of the one of the bewildering things about Donald Trump is that there is has been a long and growing list of things that a politician can't do that he manages to do, <laughs> um, and. That is what happens when you end up with a president who is, A, an idiot, B, completely corrupt, and C, prepared to illegally hijack the entire apparatus of the state. Uh, so it's a good time. Uh, so, I mean, it's it's sort of, the what it's revealing to me, to a large degree, is like the sentimentality of liberals about politics, that there's a lot of like, can he do that? Well, I don't know. He just did that. So what are you going to do about it? <laughs> so <laughs> I guess he can.
14: Um, <laughs> We're like, it's not fair. Is he allowed? Does he need a hall pass? Yeah. We're looking for fairness in a system where that it's totally unfair.
15: But also, I mean, it, it, Tiff, you raise important questions. And generally, uh, I mean, I just because I know the Bugle has an international audience. Here's a here's a general tip. That if you're looking at America and you're seeing something that seems confusing or doesn't make any sense at all, and you're like, why is that thing happening? The answer is always slavery. Um, (laughs) (laughs) that's whatever it is. Like, why, why are there racial disparities in the, in the death rate from COVID? Why are the, what's, how does the electoral college work? Why is there so much gun violence? Why are 40% of Americans obese? What is the Big Bang Theory? Why is Donald <laughs> Trump the president? It's all <laughs> slavery It's the only answer to all of that. So the the death rate from coronavirus is, is disproportionately uh, affecting black people. So like in Chicago, for instance, black people make up 30% of the population, but 70% of COVID related deaths. And that's alarming, also caused by slavery. Uh, and Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Ayanna Presley of Massachusetts called for collection of racial data on COVID. And I normally think that both of them are right about everything. But on this, I could not disagree more, uh, because Trump is already mad that COVID is hurting the economy and people like, no, let's tell Donald Central Park five good people on both sides, famous white supremacist (laughs) Trump that COVID kills black people. He'll see that as an upside. Like, Uh, oh, I get to keep helping my billionaire friends fleece the poor to fill their, uh, you know, clogged artery hearts uh and also kill black people. Where? What is the problem with this? Like, this is the most MAGA that ever MAGA'd. Uh, so if you want Republicans to take seriously the public health responses to COVID that are necessary, don't tell them that it hurts black people. Tell them that it spreads through Sean Hannity's gaze and only kills white men over 50 who own vacation (laughs) homes. And the only known cure is universal rent control.
16: I've noticed that you're very good at explaining things. So why don't you tell us uh, what the book is about and explain the title the fifth risk.
17: Sure. The book looked at the Trump total indifference to running the federal government, which started with him firing his entire transition team. So no one ever got any kind of briefings about how the various agencies ran. And it it sort of framed the whole thing as a risk management enterprise, which is what it is, uh, among other things. The federal government has this big portfolio of existential risks that it manages, most of which the American public doesn't have to think about because they've got experts in the government who are thinking about it for them, like, say, a pandemic. The idea for the book came when I walked into the first agency that I visited, it was the Department of Energy, and found there was this character who was known as the chief risk officer. His name was John McWilliams, and he'd come out of the financial sector. He'd worked at Goldman Sachs. He'd been an investor in in the energy sector. And his job had been to come and sort of frame... The risks that just the energy department, one department out of a dozen or so, had to deal with, and he come up with 138 of these things. So I said to him, "Look, look, <laughs> wow. no, no one, had ever, no one had ever talked to him. He'd spent he'd spent the previous four years there doing this, and and had real effect on what they were doing in the place." But no one from the Trump administration had bothered to call him. And and this is a department that was, among other things, like managing the nuclear arsenal.
16: Yeah, that was, I'm sure was one of the risks is a loose nuke getting
17: into some. Yeah, absolutely. or loose nuclear material. But I mean, it yeah. was this was so I mean, it was a, a year after Trump took office. I could walk in and talk to someone who managed the nuclear arsenal and be the first person he briefed uh, because no one had bothered to get the briefings. And so uh, anyway, John McWilliams, I said, look, I don't have time for all your risks. Give me your best five. And he said, let me think what the top five would be. And he said, loose nukes or nuclear, a nuclear bomb going off when it shouldn't was actually the the first one. And the second, the second one was an attack, interesting an attack on the electric grid. He said, he said, mm-hmm. it's going on. Chinese, North Koreans, et cetera, have been trying to fiddle with our electric grid. And if the power goes out in, you know, the Northeast for a month, it is a catastrophe. Three. Was the Iran nuclear deal falling apart? Um, (laughs) well, I know. And he said, you know, it it would just, it would just ratchet up the probability of nuclear war. And four, he said these missiles that the North Koreans are launching into the sea that everybody thinks is a joke. Actually, they've got some Ukrainian, new Ukrainian scientists who've moved there and they're just testing and it's getting better and better and better. And we're, we're monitoring that in our national labs and measuring what they're doing. So I said, what's the fifth? And he paused for a long time. And I thought, there's my story. The story is the risk you're not thinking about uh, because there's so many of them, you can't keep them all in in mind.
16: So it's basically about the risk that the federal government isn't preparing for properly. And let me ask you this. Um, Do you think you have enough material for the paperback? (laughs)
17: <laughs> the paperbacks out. Uh, I think I have enough material for another book. And in fact, it's going to be a different sort of book. But I think that it's just very hard not to write about what's going on because it's interesting in so many ways. If you look at the way the Trump administration has responded to the coronavirus, I mean, it's appalling. They've been really bad for the first couple of months in in their response. But it isn't just this. I think there are a number of things that might have happened that they were equally unprepared for that we'll never know about because they didn't happen. This just happens to be the thing that happened. And what you're seeing is a little portrait of the Trump administration's management ability. You know, it's just being written by the pandemic as opposed to, I don't know, an attack on the electric grid or terrorist attacks or, you know, threats to the water supply or whatever else it is that that they were supposedly managing and not managing. Have you been studying this one in particular? Yes, because i remember watching it closely and talking to doctors and epidemiologists and people in the government who or who were in the government who were in a position to manage a response to the pandemic. And you can see that there was an early warning system that had been built and a management system that had been built going back to the Bush administration. There's a document that was written in 2005, and it was just like preparing for pandemic influenza. It really is sort of the playbook, and it was updated by the Obama administration. In addition to that, the, the Obama administration had put in a, a pandemic response team on the National Security Council that reported direct. it was in the White House.
16: The National Security Advisor does not have to be confirmed
17: by the Senate. The NSC is the president's deal. And the person, that person can call the president. There are lots of different agencies that come into play when a, a disease is threatening to break out in the United States. It's not just the Center for Disease Control. It's Health and Human Services. It's the State Department. It's the Department of Transportation. Lots of different agencies are involved. And the idea was you need someone to manage this whole thing. So, so for example, when the Center for Disease Control swears it has a test that works and can get it out in time, you have a check on them. You aren't just trusting the Center for Disease Control, as they did. And Trump fired this entire pandemic response team on the NSC.
16: On, on the NSC, he, he abolished this office. That's right. To it, respond it, to pandemics, because he has, of course, blamed Obama, as he does for pretty much everything. When he was asked about disbanding this office, he said he didn't know about it. You know, that's convenient, right? Um, I mean his I don't know. Is that good? <laughs> I mean is that is that like you see, I didn't know about it. I didn't know about the pandemic group that we got rid of. If he, he'd he,
17: he spent just a little bit of the time that he spends tapping on his phone in the mornings and at night, paying attention to this enterprise he's meant to have been managing. You, might you're have
16: saying known. he has a bad leadership style, you think? Uh, Ill suited for the presidency. Is that what you're is
17: that what you're saying? That's one of the things I'm saying. It's worse than just a leadership style. His character is ill-suited to leadership. <laughs> there, there are things okay. about him, especially leadership in a crisis, that make him really bad at this.
16: Is that the narcissism?
17: Well, one of them is like he doesn't want bad news. He just he wants all everything to be good news, especially about him. And so anybody who brings to his attention a mistake he might have made or a mistake his administration made and needs to be corrected is likely to get their heads lopped off. So what does that mean? Nobody's willing to go tell him that he made a mistake or his administration made a mistake. So when they make a mistake, it doesn't get fixed. It festers. He has this thing. And I think, I mean, there are different ways of putting it. But it's been interesting to me. And this even predates his presidency. It's just like who he is. His whole life, he's had this capacity, this tendency to retell whatever happened, never mind the facts, in a way that's flattering to himself. So what's happened is he's developed this habit of he doesn't really care what happens. It's sort of like what happens is what he spins it as after. And I think that means that he creates a of psychological incentive not to pay very much attention to what happens because he's thinking all the time, what's the story I'm going to tell?
16: That's what it feels like. It's like it's a reality show and we're living the reality. The American people are living the reality of this. But he can go pretty much the
17: first two months and say it's no problem, right? And think about what that means because – what he did was he abdicated the responsibility of taking charge of this thing and left it to local leaders to do things like close the school systems and much much harder to do when you don't have the federal government giving you any kind of cover. If you don't have the president standing up and saying this is the right thing to do when it is clearly the right thing to do and it's actually in the playbook. Um, but and instead sort of hedging it so that Look if everybody's angry about the schools being closed they won't blame him they'll blame the local leader who t- who was brave enough to do it if it ends up working and uh and everybody sort of kind of says ah oh, look not as many people died as we thought he can he can say but we're ir- and we're irritated how much was closed down he can say i didn't want to close it down in the first place
16: what do you think this whole thing about his view of the federal government
17: How insane is that? You know, there were lots of little anecdotes that were thrown at me when I was working on the book. And one of them that stuck in my mind was how shocked Jared Kushner was when all the people who were in the White House had left when they turned up. He thought, everybody kind of stayed he didn't realize how much <laughs> that's right he, he didn't realize how much how yeah. much there was to do if you think about the way the way trump talks about the government it's always just the deep state right it's not it's not this precious tool that could, is the only tool for dealing with a crisis like this or an enterprise filled with people who are giving blood sweat and tears to their country because they love it it's this deep state it resonates obviously with his audience but but cuz as you know the strange thing about our democracy is how shallow the state is, that you you have, when you're president, 4,000-plus people to appoint, uh, many of whom you need to get confirmed by the Senate, in order to run the government. You run the government. You put your people in. And it's not this this body that's sort of alien to you you have no control over. Much more so, this is much more true of our government than, say, the British government or the French government, where there is a civil service that sort of stays in place running things from administration to administration. And so he has far more control over this than the typical democratically elected leader does over his state. And yet, he seems to regard it as basically not his problem. And running it is no big deal. Speaking of Jared
16: uh jared became part of the task force right or was an adjunct to it and I, i've read that uh he was kind of a distraction they had to answer questions that jared had but i remember when he came out in the press conference and basically contradicted what some
17: doctor had said some mere well, doctor.
16: Yeah, i think well, what what the uh what tony fauci had said I think it was Fauci or or what the models he doubted the models they were using. Remember Reagan's thing the the nine most terrifying words in the English language are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I think the eight most terrifying words in the English language are I'm Jared Kushner and I'm here to help.
17: <laughs> well, you know, Donald Trump has actually made the Reagan line kind of true, right? He himself, anyway, this is dangerous to the American people. He gets up and he offers medical advice. Take this drug. People are dying because he said, take this drug. You know, they, I don't know if you, there was a couple in Arizona who went, took the drug and died. There are people who need the drug for other things.
16: I think it, wasn't it part of some fish?
17: Yeah, fish tank. In a
16: fish tank? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Okay, it's not, that's not totally on him. That's on, a little on the couple, and I hate to be rough i'm with you on
17: that but okay but as a general rule when doctors are skeptical of a drug as useful in a particular illness the president shouldn't be getting up at a press conference telling everybody to take it
16: and he shouldn't be cutting fauci off when he's asked about it
17: you know one of the patterns in the trump administration and jared being in any way involved in the response to the pandemic is an illustration of it, is that you know because Trump only appointed people who he was sure were totally loyal to him, irrespective of their qualifications for whatever job he was giving them. There were lots and lots of people, an extraordinary number of people, and this happens in any administration, but in this administration it was off the charts. An extraordinary number of people who were totally ill-suited for the jobs they were given. What surprised me. If I'm a person like, I don't know, Rick Perry, who's called for the abolishment of the energy department without knowing anything about what goes on inside the energy department, and then Donald Trump offers me the chance to run the energy department, I think my response, if he offers me that, is to say, no, as a patriotic American, I can't do that because not only do I really not know anything about it, I've shown everybody I don't know anything about it. It's It would be an embarrassment. And if Jared Kushner is offered the chance to run some sort of pandemic response unit, the thing he should do is say, I don't know. You know, there are other people who know. I'd understand Trump is basically kind of insane in some way. And he will, he will offer people these jobs. I'm just amazed how many people take the jobs. Because these are people who are not completely insane. And you would think they'd say, look, daddy, daddy-in-law, uh, pops, um... There are other things I could do. Put me in charge of, I don't know, uh, rebuilding the ranger huts in, in national parks. I know building. Uh, but don't, don't make me the head of the pandemic response. Does
16: he me. really know buildings? <laughs>
17: <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. He, he knows something, right? Put me in charge of the slim suit acquisition policy. Uh, it, it, there's something he knows or something he's qualified for. I mean in your life people must have come to you and they've come to me offering me jobs that I knew I just had no business taking and I just said no, right? I mean Yeah.
16: Right? Well, you, you don't want one. You know what you're capable of and what you're not and uh you don't want to embarrass yourself. That's by, the
17: big thing. You don't want to embarrass you know? yourself. Yeah, or kill people it.
16: or kill or, a lot of people. There's secondarily,
17: that. secondarily, <laughs> there's that. But And that's but,
16: embarrassing. That is embarrassing. embarrassing killing. Uh, being responsible for the deaths of tens if not hundreds of thousands of people, but Trump doesn't seem to be embarrassed.
17: No. Um, I mean, that's a peculiar mind at work. I mean, people want to put words a word to it, but it really is, it's really worth describing what's going on in there. The The business of telling a story after the fact and that being the only thing that matters. So he's looking constantly for that material rather than whatever the reality is. How can reality be distorted in a plausible enough way?
10: As the death rate from the coronavirus pandemic continues to accelerate, with more than two million confirmed infections worldwide and at least 127,000 deaths, President Trump said Tuesday he would cut off U.S. support for the World Health Organization. Speaking from the Rose Garden, Trump sought to shift blame for his administration's disastrous handling of the pandemic onto the U.N. Public Health Agency, accusing the WHO of helping China to cover up the spread of the coronavirus when it emerged late last year.
3: The world depends on the WHO to work with countries to ensure that accurate information about international health threats is shared in a timely manner. And if it's not To independently tell the world the truth about what is happening. The WHO failed in this basic duty
10: and must be held accountable. Trump's decision sparked international outrage and condemnation. Richard Horton, editor in chief of the Lancet Medical Journal, tweeted President Trump's decision to defund WHO is simply this a crime against humanity. Every scientist, every health worker, every citizen must resist and rebel against this appalling betrayal of global solidarity. The American Medical Association's president, Patrice Harris, called on Trump to reconsider the cut, saying, quote, fighting a global pandemic requires international cooperation and reliance on science and data, she said. The global anti-poverty organization, Oxfam America, said the cuts slash, quote, any hopes for the responsible international cooperation and solidarity that's critical to save lives and restore the global economy. This comes as a new Oxfam report estimates the pandemic's economic 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 fallout could push more than half a billion more people into poverty. For nearly 3 billion people already living in poverty and facing malnutrition, the virus could be deadly. In all, it estimates half of the world's 7.8 billion people could be living in poverty in the virus's aftermath, the report's called Dignity Not Destitution, an economic rescue plan for all to tackle the coronavirus crisis and rebuild a more equal world. For more, we're joined by Oxfam America's vice president, Paul O'Brien. Welcome to Democracy Now! Let's begin with President Trump. In the midst of this pandemic, where the U.S. is the epicenter of the world's pandemic, more deaths than any other country in the world, President Trump announces he's ending support for the Wellert Health Organization. Paul O'Brien, your response?
18: Thanks for having me on. Uh, it was pretty shocking to hear that last night. Uh, we had predicted last week that the number of deaths uh, from coronavirus could be as high as 40 million over uh, the coming period. Um, so we're already in crisis, but it could get significantly worse. Uh, President Trump has his Treasury Secretary talking to other G20 finance ministers today. And what what that uh leader needs to be able to show is america's role in leading multilateral cooperation and at the same time he's announcing that he's going to cut the legs off uh, the world health organization there, thereby undermining his own uh attempt to show global leadership it was profoundly self-destructive um For U.S. leadership, it's profoundly harmful for our world, uh, and it seems to be nothing other than short-term blame-shifting and scapegoating in order to distract people uh, from the, the failures of this administration to properly lead on the issue. But its consequences could be devastating for people.
10: Paul O'Brien, there are many critics of the World Health Organization. But across the board now, um, with President Trump announcing that he is cutting the funding for this organization, the U.S., the largest funder of the World Health Organization, explain what this organization does and why it is so critical. Um, and with President Trump, so deeply concerned about what's happening in the United States, one would think, why what happens in the rest of the world makes an enormous difference to what will happen in this country. Well, as
18: you say, uh, New York is the epicenter of the crisis. The U.S. is now facing more deaths per day than, than has been seen. We are facing our own health crisis here. We're also facing our own economic crisis here. Just at the same time, you've got 17 million new unemployed in the United States. And even before this crisis started, um, you had 40% of Americans didn't have $400 to their name for an emergency, and then the crisis hits. So you've got a health crisis and an economic crisis here. You've got That, in in many ways, even worse in many of the communities that Oxfam works in. We work in 90 countries around the world, including the United States. But you've got this health and economic crisis coming at the same time. You've got a World Health Organization whose job it is to convene leaders, to make sure that uh, the response is coordinated and evidence-based, is based on science, and that there is a truly global response to a global pandemic. So apart from the financing of the organization, the leadership and the moral authority of the organization to be able to drive global consensus to respond to this health and economic crisis is absolutely critical. And for President Trump, the world's most powerful politician, to stand on a stage yesterday for whatever reason he had and to attack them in order to blame shift, undermines their ability to get that global consensus at a critical time. So this, this, this act in itself could have profound repercussions for many of the people that we see as particularly vulnerable in the United States and around the world.
10: He made the announcement in the Rose Garden yesterday, the single one-day—the highest one-day death toll for any nation in the world, 2,228 people died of COVID-19. That's the United States. Um, <clears throat> talk about— the rest of the world where perhaps the uh, where COVID-19 hasn't hit as hard yet, uh, mainly, for example, in Africa, and what the World Health Organization means, particularly um, for these areas of the world, the most vulnerable?
18: Right. Well, the the whole world is vulnerable. We think particularly when you look at the combination of bad health systems or weak health systems and economic vulnerability, three areas are at at greatest risk. Sub-Saharan Africa, North Africa, and the Middle East. Um, You've got, in our our report, uh, found that we think 500 million more people could go into poverty as a consequence of this, essentially wiping out all the progress that's been made over the last 30 years in some contexts, and on average, the last 10 years of progress. Um, women are going to be uh, as is so often the case facing the brunt of uh, of much of the of the consequences of this in Bangladesh for example a billion garment workers uh, were laid off from their jobs eighty percent of them are women uh, in Kenya flower factories just shut down thirty thousand people sent home most of them are women we we, we don 't have enough protections in the United States because we haven't addressed the problems of chronic Extreme inequality. But when you look at what's going on outside of the United States, where 80% of the people on the, of the workers on the planet Earth have no health insurance, Uh, 2 billion people are in the informal economy. So if you're in a context, let me just raise five contexts for you. These are the five largest slums in the world. There are slums in Karachi and Mumbai in Asia, in Cape Town and in Nairobi. Uh, um, in uh, Kenya and in Mexico City. Those five, they're the largest single slums in large, larger cities, have 5.7 million people. When coronavirus hits those environments, first, there's no healthcare system in, in those contexts that's got ventilators waiting for them. In some countries where we work, there are literally two or three ventilators in the whole country. But economically, People are living in close quarters, there's no physical distancing possible, they get no sick pay, their economies are being shut down, they're being told stay in place, they're not able to trade, they're not able to access goods. In many contexts, their borders are now not allowing food if they're net importing countries. So we have an economic crisis that is potentially coming along with a health crisis that is going to be profoundly harmful for many people and potentially destabilizing in ways that we will all face the consequences.
19: Uh, Hari, you're a great uh, leader. President Trump has been, um, on a daily basis, entertaining the world with his um, masterclass in uh, how to be the exact leader the world does not need at a time uh, like this. Uh, Basically, I think Trump as president in a pandemic is like entrusting a rhinoceros to ride a kid's tricycle. Uh, and once you've helped it onto its seat there is no possible way it can end well and it just gets more confusing and unpalatable when you realise the rhinoceros is really enjoying itself
20: yeah it's Um, funny that he's not your leader (laughs) (laughs) it's it's so hilarious Andy yes when I watch his press conferences I laugh and laugh and laugh
14: you should have an efficient leadership like ours Our leadership is so committed to this fight against coronavirus (laughs) that the head guy contracted it. How do you feel about that, Harry? The the de facto prime minister is a man feel. I feel
20: envious. (laughs)
14: the de facto prime minister of the uk is from my personal experience a man who can't tell brown people apart and the government's best strategy appears to be our home secretary priti patel trying to deport coronavirus
20: well at least your leader didn't suggest that we inject ourselves with disinfectant (laughs) to stop coronavirus this is the president of the united states which by the way he's right because that would kill us And that would end coronavirus. Yeah,
19: exactly. (laughs) You can't find the stats. Um, I mean, it's it's an interesting way to go about it. To suggest blasting disinfectant directly into people's lungs. And I I have checked some of the bottles of disinfectant that we've got in our house. And uh, it might be that he's just got the words mixed up because it says, if ingested, seek medical help immediately. Yeah, Yeah, it's Uh, right on there. (laughs) Rather than, if seeking medical help, ingest immediately. So you can understand it's not that different, really. It might be that he just scanned Reddit. He's a very busy man. It's very hard work being president of a large country.
20: To be Uh, fair, it never said on the bottle, it it has never said on the bottle, do not inject intravenously. It never (laughs) says that. It says ingest.
14: It led to the, uh, the BBC's coverage of it. Uh, meant that the BBC, because the BBC, you know, it's a public service broadcaster in this country, and so it has to adopt the same sort of dry professorial tone to whatever bullshit the President of America has spouted. Mm-hmm. So in the article covering it, at the bottom, there was a web- there was a, an article written by a BBC health reporter with the headline, Disinfectants don't work inside the body. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 as that person was writing that, they, it must have taken every ounce of state-induced b- non-bias to not write, are you f***ing kidding me?
19: <laughs> <laughs> um, he also seems to be banking a bit on sunlight killing it. Um, can't believe he hasn't really su- suggested garlic and making a sign of a crucifix or for else fails, malleting <laughs> a wooden stake through the virus's heart. And uh, on the subject of the, the disinfectant, he said, if it could knock out the virus in a, in a minute, um, uh, is there a way that we can do something like that by injection inside almost a cleaning? I and mean, he's not far away from f- suggesting a, a full exorcism. I mean, clearly, we know it's election year. He is pandering to the Christian right. He wants to bring exorcisms back into mainstream medicine i 'm um, waiting for him to suggest that we
20: shrink the army <laughs> into <laughs> into tiny little specks that could enter and kill the kill the virus from the inside. Well, I mean, don't even say these things out loud. You just <laughs> can't be too. A couple careful. of
14: weeks ago, at one of his uh, his sort of daily stand-up comedy routines, <laughs> he said that he he sort of <laughs> he's the only like, guy that's got any f- <laughs> gigs at the moment. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and he did sort of. I, I mean, he, he he sort of suggested some. He made some sort of wisecrack that seemed to be him like suggesting that he'd had sex with a lot of models as part of a conversation, and I thought. Oh, that's really bad. And then this morning, I found myself saying out loud a sentence I never thought I'd ever say. I wish the President of America would stop suggesting you can inject disinfectant into the human body (laughs) and go back to bragging about banging models when asked about a deadly global pandemic. That is on a par with unexpected sentences I've been forced to say in the last 12 months, including England have won the Cricket World Cup and maybe we don't need another Batman movie.
0: As an independent production that depends on the direct financial support of the audience, Best of the Left is as vulnerable as everyone else in this time of economic uncertainty. When people can't go to work or get laid off, non-essential expenses are the first to go. We perfectly understand that, and that's why we expect to begin to see a drop in our Patreon members in the coming weeks. So if you can support the show directly on Patreon, that would be amazing and fantastic, and we thank you for that. But there is also a way you can support the show without it costing you any money. So if you're doing any shopping from the big box store in the sky, you can use our affiliate link and we'll get a cut of the price from everything you purchase. Our affiliate links for the U.S., U.K., and Canadian stores are in the show notes on our website and on the device you're using to listen right now. If you use our link and you're taken to either the homepage or our Alexa skill page, then you have done it right There's nothing additional you need to do, and we will benefit from the shopping you do after that. If you take just a moment to bookmark our link to your country's store on your browser, or even delete the mobile app on your phone and add that link as a button in its place, you can enormously help us get through this health and economic crisis just by doing your regular online shopping. Thanks so much for your support.
5: Just going back to your propaganda machine point, you wrote in The Atlantic about this sort of toxic symbiosis that exists between the president... And his right-wing media echo chamber, especially Fox News, which both amplify his false statements about the virus, but also provide him with crazy fodder to repeat, you know, this line this week about the cure can't be worse than the disease, which he just lifted from Fox. Uh, You also mentioned an Arkansas pastor who was quoted in The Washington Post saying, quote, in your more politically conservative regions, closing is not interpreted as caring for you. It's interpreted as liberalism or buying into the hype. Have we ever seen a a public, political, party, media response to a pandemic like this before? Just so so loaded and so uh, so filled with kind of partisan uh, meaning and baggage.
21: Uh, well, I I, can't, I am not a historian of infectious diseases, so I can't I can't answer that. But I can say that. You know, the the behavior of Fox News has been really extraordinary here because what they did was when the president was downplaying the epidemic, Fox News was downplaying the epidemic. And when the president decided that he needed to sort of take charge and show everybody he was doing his job, uh, Fox News talked about how heroic the president was being. And now that uh, you know the, the the president is worried about his reelection, Fox News is encouraging him to think about quote ho- opening up the economy again, which is I, I mean I'm, it's not even clear to me what that entails except exposing people to potential infection.
5: But which of them, Adam, is the dog and which of them is the tail? I
21: don't think uh, it, it's not it's not actually clear. I mean, I don't think that's actually clear because in one sense, Trump looks at Fox as a a kind of like pipeline to his base. And also Fox sees Trump as an important asset for their political project. So they sort of they, they sort of mutually stand each other up. Fox defends the president no matter what he does, and when they think he's and you can see this sometimes on Fox when people on Fox think the president is getting himself in danger, as you know, Fox News host Tucker Carlson did earlier, uh, you know, uh, earlier this month. He, he tried to convince. The president that actually the epidemic was a serious thing and he should start taking it seriously. But until then, you know, Fox News was endangering its own audience by telling them that the coronavirus was not, nothing to work to worry about. And what's fascinating about that is that Fox imagines itself as a corrective to the mainstream media, which supposedly lies to you all the time um, for political reasons. But what we have here is Fox, which, you know, internally they were saying we need to take precautions to worry about this epidemic, but they were broadcasting the message that there was nothing to worry about. And that's because their role is to protect the president and make sure the conservative base sees him as infallible. It's not to actually inform the conservative base about information that is vital to their well-being. In fact, when or they had the opportunity <laughs> or protect or when they had the opportunity to do that, what they did was endanger them by lying to them about uh, how serious this was.
5: So So you followed this presidency closely, you've written extensively about Trump. Do you believe his handling of this crisis is a product of ignorance, of his sheer dumbness, of his conspiratorial anti-scientific mindset? Or is he just a sociopath who knows what he's doing could kill millions of people, but he just doesn't care because he firmly believes his re-election is more important to the world than social distancing or saving American lives?
21: I think... The, thing, the most simplest thing to understand about Trump is he thinks that everything is about him. He thinks that—so he will always look out for number one. The federal government there is to do what he wants— um, even the governors of states who are begging him for aid have to be nice to Mr. Trump if they want to get it. Yes. Um, so, you know, to, the, 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 and, and the sort of authoritarian cult of personality that has been built up around him um, sees the same thing. Trump is basically the nation to them. So Trump cannot betray the nation. He can't betray the public trust because he is all of those things. He is those things manifested. So there's nothing that he can do that is actually selfish. Whatever self- acts that might be selfish in another context context by another chief executive, by another human being are not selfish because Trump is the country and therefore he is serving the country. So when Trump is pursuing his own self-interest, no matter the human cost, Uh, even when it's a a pursuit that exposes Americans to a deadly disease because he doesn't feel like dealing with it until the stock market crashes. He is still um, serving the country loyally because after all, to serve Trump loyally is to serve the country loyally. And this is a sort of very dangerous political mentality and one that unfortunately the country is going to be dealing with the consequences of for a very long time.
2: If you were to sit down and make a list of all the things both Trump and his regime and the people around him have done and said, just write it down, black and white, and read it. It would terrify any thinking person. But because they've gotten so used to it, it's normalization, people are unmoored from reality, and I know some people must be thinking, I'm not crazy yet. I think there's something compelling, and at a certain point, the villain, he's the show, and there's something compelling about what this man is doing, and I can see how it can seduce people. He's unstoppable
6: there was something really compelling about villains and antiheroes. And Donald Trump is that he came onto the scene and he was interesting in a way that other politicians weren't willing to be interesting. And that addicted people. And there are people all around this country who are in his sway. And we can talk about why, and we can talk about all the different factors, and they're all true. But they got in his sway, not just because he was entertaining, but he was compelling. And these people are not going to leap. They are also enthralled to him and the narrative and their own identities and they're not leaving and if anybody thinks that donald trump's going to be beaten in a landslide in november if we have an election that's not what's going to happen his group is not going to go away they reside in an alternate reality right now and they're not going to just willingly get up and leave
2: but here's another aspect of why trump is so compelling and why the democrats i still say are going to lose they don't have a hero they don't have a story bernie he was a far more interesting character but biden is not compelling. Whatever you think about Trump, he's a hell of a story. You can say he's evil, but you got to watch him. I have a lot of
6: concerns about what's happening right now. The media wants spectacle at all times. They want scandal and spectacle. And what exactly happened with Hillary Clinton and her emails in 2016? is going to happen with biden i've talked to enough people i've made enough observations at this point the donald trump campaign is going to run against joe biden as if he was donald trump they're going to call him racist they're going to say that his mental well-being is in decline they're going to say that he is a creep against women gaffes they're going to put all of the things about trump and they're going to project it onto biden and that's the plan and the media will go for it they just will now whether or not coronavirus and this pandemic creates a situation where maybe the politics as usual is upturned. Absolutely. That is a real possibility because we don't know how these things work and we are in unprecedented territory. But I agree. The Democratic Party doesn't know what it is or who it is. And that has been a problem for decades now. And it's in this place now where I hate to say this and I hate to be flip about it. The most Democratic Party thing possible is to lose the re-election campaign of Donald Trump, a historically dangerous and unpopular president. That is the most Democratic Party thing imaginable.
2: I mean, they're experts at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory because on paper they should have it, but they don't know how to fight. They lack heroes. They lack characters. But you saw that poll a few days ago about Trump's response to the virus. Forty eight percent of Americans say he, they trust him. He's doing a good job. Well, that's basically his basement level of support. This is a cult. This is mass delusion. So he's got forty eight percent no matter what. He's the daddy. He's the mama. Trump is father. Trump is mother. So if you go to him for salvation, this is why I think he's going to be more popular among his supporters. They're afraid. They're terrorized. It's existential threat. But Daddy Trump will save us. And that's why he's going to be more popular.
6: You know, I've been writing about this more and more and talking about it more and more because it's incredibly important. And it's the only reason why I recognized it as a cult as early as I did. I grew up in it. I grew up in rural Indiana in this evangelical white identity movement. I had no idea what it was. In the 1950s and 1960s, there was a neo Confederate revival with Jerry Falwell and Robertson and all those guys who were working against the civil rights movement. They perverted Christianity, took away the social justice aspects, and turned it into a white supremacist worship of power and wealth. Well, guess what? Donald Trump is the perfect Messiah for those people. And they've been raised up in this belief that they're all. All these conspiracies between Jewish people, people of color, women, gay people. All these different groups are coming together underneath. It used to be the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. It later on became the New World Order. Now you may know it as the Deep State. They believe that they are fighting a satanic conspiracy, and the only person who can save them is Donald Trump. They're not going to move, and I hate to deliver this to people who aren't aware of it, but the people that I know, the people that I love who are still in that cult, the people who still reside in it, and I call it the call of the shining city because reagan's in there too and that's they see this as a sign of the end times. That's what they see this as. And and do you know what happens in the end times? It's the battle of revelation. It means that they're going to need their Christ to fight an antichrist. They're not leaving Trump. It doesn't matter if they lose people in this. It doesn't matter if all of them are stricken down with coronavirus and sick and hurting and the bills pile up. They're going to continue to go deeper because when you're in a cult, your entire personality is wrapped up in the cult leader. It doesn't matter if they lie, if they're wrong. And all of it. It just makes you Go deeper
2: and deeper into the cult. And again, going back to the news media downplaying things that they should be focused on and they make fun of it and it's drive by coverage. Ha ha ha. Look at the rubes out in Trump Landia. Now, they had that story a few days ago about these Trump churches telling these sad people to lick the floor of the church to prove that there's no disease. These people will do everything Trump says, which they will. You can laugh at them licking floors, but they also follow through on commands to violence. What does that say about our society? And we can go down the list. Broken educational system, loneliness, social atomization, religious fundamentalism, mental health issues. But none of this is funny because the next order is going to go from licking the floors of the churches to going out there and engaging in violence, which they're already doing through stochastic terrorism.
6: This is a perfect crisis for an authoritarian. Authoritarians do not take responsibility for their failures. They find other people to blame for them. They find scapegoats. They find conspiracies that they can blame, other countries, traitors, you know, all this stuff. It all keeps working in this cult mentality. If this thing gets bad and talked to enough people and enough experts, I can tell you it sounds like this thing is going to get bad. We're going to know some people who probably die from this, and we're going to watch society start to really suffer. There are people out there. Most of us are quarantined, practice social distance, and we're going to be careful because we care about people and we're thoughtful. There are people out there right now who see this as an opportunity, and they've been waiting for things like this. And Donald Trump time and time again, has found himself in alliances with people, white supremacists, paramilitary groups, neo-Nazi groups. If things get bad and if Donald Trump sees that he is in danger, he will put the rest of us in more danger. There's a chance that that could get really, really awful and really bad, particularly as we're most vulnerable. So that is something that people need to think about because that's how these things happen. That's how societies fall to fascism. It's a crisis. It leads to seizing power and danger
22: to go through life looked at as a potential contagion White folks are not used to being viewed as carriers potentially of something awful. Now, obviously, there are exceptions. Gay white folks during the height of the HIV-AIDS epidemic, for instance, could not take that for granted. For the most part, white folks are not used to people of color moving away from them or looking at them funny. And, you know, you got millions of people right now who maybe for the first time, probably for many of them, for the first time in their lives, are having this sort of existential crisis of, can I go out? If I go out, will I be safe? Can I go driving around? Can I walk or jog around the neighborhood? Can I go to the store and be safe? Now, those are all very legitimate questions in the middle of a pandemic that we're all asking. But of course, the irony is that millions of Americans ask those same questions every day with or without a virus breathing down their neck. So people of color actually do have to wonder, can I go for a jog around the neighborhood? Well, who knows? Because somebody might think I don't belong and they'll call the cops. Can I go to the Walmart? Well, not if you're John Crawford and you make the mistake of picking up an air rifle and Talking on the telephone, and somebody decides you're going to shoot someone and they call the cops and they kill you. Can I just go driving around? Well, not if I'm a person of color who's now subjecting myself to profiling. Can I go for a jog around the neighborhood? Not if I'm a woman worried about sexual assault. If I'm trans, or just think about the fear of, am I going to have a job in six months? If I get sick, am I going to have health care? Those are perfectly daily routine fears that people of color have. That poor folks of all colors have, that women disproportionately have, that LGBTQ folks have. So all of these fears that now everybody's sort of having are an opportunity, at least in theory, they are an opportunity to demonstrate if we're open to the lesson, and that's a huge if opportunity to stitch together some empathy and to actually say, yeah, this thing you're feeling right now, feeling cooped up, feeling like you don't know where you can go, if you can go, will you be safe? Will you have work? Will you have health care? Will it be affordable? Are you going to die? These are the things that lots of people think about. And when this whole crisis passes, they'll still be thinking about it. The question is, will you be listening when they mention it? That is the thing here. This is a crossroads moment where the opportunity To say, see what's happening? This is what some folks have been trying to tell us about belonging and non belonging, about space and about who belongs in this space and who can be in this space. This is what others have been trying to tell us about community and the importance of empathy and the importance of connecting to one another. Because all of this calls into real question, if we are prepared to engage it at this level, some of these deeply held American ideologies, which are so tied to whiteness, and so tied to American masculinity, and so tied to capitalism, all three of those things, the hyper-individuality, and that really has two components. One is the component of, I can do what I want and go where I want, and by God, it's tyranny if you tell me to shelter in place for two weeks, but it's also the hyper-individualism of, hey, man, I'm not responsible for your health you got to take care of you. I'm taking care of my family. I pay for my health care. I don't want my taxes to go up so that you have health care. How dare you expect me to take care of you? Well, the problem being, no matter how I prance and preen and say those things and puff myself up about what a great provider I am and you're not, the reality is, no matter what I think about you for not having a good enough job to afford health care or enough money to pay for health care in this system. The reality is your health does affect because your kids go to school with my kids or we shop in the same stores and we share the same public parks. And so I do have to care about you.
2: You coined a beautiful description of Trump as a type of human opioid. And it's obvious, but needs to be stated. You've written about it. I've written about it. In terms of thinking about white male entitlement, white privilege, and how whiteness kills white people, racism hurts white people. If Donald Trump were a black man or a Latino or a woman, Republican or Democrat, I dare say, he would have been removed from office years ago. And you're watching these press conferences and talk about an example of white privilege and the fact that people actually try to grant him some competence.
22: Only white men are allowed to be this incompetent. And remain in positions of power. But you have a situation where who's foot dragging at the outset of this and his confidence that, oh, it'll be fine, which of course was intended to keep his poll numbers up. It was intended to not scare the markets. It was intended to put a happy face on things. But all of that obviously delayed testing. It delayed the rollout of the economic package which just passed, which then means it delayed getting money to people. It'll happen, but it's going to happen later than it would have. It delayed the masks that are needed, ventilators that might be needed. Everything's been delayed, which means that there will be, when this thing is over, even in the best case scenario, there will be thousands upon thousands, probably tens of thousands of white people who are going to die because of that foot dragging and we know statistically that a good number of those are going to be Trump voters because we know that most white people voted for Trump. And by the way, not just white people in Alabama and Wyoming and Montana who think they can't get this thing, but even half the white folks in California and roughly almost half the white folks in states that we consider blue states. The only reason they're blue is because of people of color. The white folks in those states are very nearly either split or slightly Republican in terms of whom they vote for. So he will literally be, and Fox News and all these folks that have played to old people, and they're the most vulnerable people. So it's very obvious that this is an administration and an individual who's willing to kill his own base in order to keep his poll numbers high, to keep the economy humming along. And because so much of what he does in dragging his feet, I think, was connected to his xenophobia and his racism. We can then say that that xenophobia and racism is again implicated in their suffering. And when I say that racism and xenophobia is implicated in his response, I mean his assumption that all he had to do was shut down the border, turning to those xenophobic and nationalistic answers to problems that are much more complicated than that. Thinking that if you just blame the Chinese for creating the virus and spreading the virus, that it'll take whatever heat you need to deal with off of you in a very real sense. Uh, once again, not just his incompetence, the way that he understands the world and the way that he understands America's place in the world versus others, particularly non-white nations, is going to get people killed. And a lot of them are his people. But the thing is, going back to the opiate analogy or metaphor that I've used before, the saddest thing is that you have an awful lot of his people who seem to be perfectly comfortable
2: with that. So Trump talking about the ventilators, he's basically going to punish any part of the country that doesn't vote for him. He's manifestly incompetent, evil. And I use that language intentionally. Stephen Miller, the whole regime, they're evil. And you see these responses online. I can't imagine this. How can somebody be so evil? How can they do these things? This isn't America. And I want to write back to them and say, read a damn history book. This is a country, Jim and Jane Crow, white supremacy, genocide, turning Japanese Americans, eugenics, go down the list, the blood on this country's hands. How do we make sense of that sort of naivete? Do they really believe it? I think
22: part of it is absolutely bad education, obviously, that most people really don't know, even the most basic contours and realities of the way that this country is actually operated for most of its history. It's also very motivated reasoning. If, in fact, we start from the premise that most people are pretty Deep down, decent people who don't want to harm others, who aren't antisocial personalities, who aren't sociopathic. Most people are not sadistic. The problem, I mean, on the one hand, it's great that most people are not those things. But on the other hand, the bad thing about it is that when you are that good person, that person who would never kick a puppy, who loves children and old people, who is not overtly bigoted, who is, in fact, is a lovely, wonderful person who bake cookies for the new neighbor when they move in and go take them and be the welcome wagon and all that stuff. It's precisely because you are that person that you sometimes find it harder to look into the face of the ugliness. If you're a sadist or if you're uh, looking at the ugliness doesn't really bother you, sociopath nice person to acknowledge that you live in a society of such profound pain. And especially if that pain is pain that you are in some sense implicated in, which as Americans, we all are. If you're white, especially, and if you're middle class or above and you've got health care while other people don't. You're implicated in that system. So to admit that when you're a good person can be really hard for people because, as James Baldwin said, once you acknowledge the truth, now you're on the hook. White folks really don't want to be on the hook. And so it's easier to deny what all of our senses are telling us. And you've said this before, and I think you might have said it in a piece that I just read today, actually, that, you know, usually they don't say the quiet part out loud. So for years, what these folks would say, they would never say the quiet part out loud, be as blatant and be as obvious as Donald Trump. For years, they cultivated old school dog whistle politics. For the most part in the past, most right wing politicians who have played this reactionary race card that they play have usually tried to be more slick than Donald Trump about it. Donald Trump has clearly taken that and has decided either he doesn't have to be slick, or maybe he doesn't want to be, or maybe he doesn't know how to be as slick, or maybe he's just decided, screw it. In an era where white folks are diminishing in numbers, I don't have to be slick. I can just play straight to the fear of quote-unquote replacement, and I'll be able to get away with it. Donald Trump clearly doesn't care much about plausible deniability. That is different. So if someone wants to say online, oh my God, I can't believe they're saying the quiet part out loud. Okay, that's an interesting conversation about why that's happening, why they feel like they can't. But the idea that I can't believe they think like this is not at all surprising. What's really surprising is that more people don't think like that and actually find it disturbing. That makes me feel good. I'm glad to know there are people who are appalled by it, but I wish that they would do more than complain
2: on Twitter. Imagine, let's do a thought experiment. If white folks had realized some decades ago, we don't even have to go back to the 19th century, let's say 1960s, white America had a mass epiphany after the civil rights movement, that racism hurts white people too. What do you think our country would look like now in terms of the coronavirus or other issues? I think a lot of
22: things would be obviously very different. There would be some people who were still locked in the cult mentality, and it wouldn't have mattered. I think what would have generally happened is we would have seen, for instance, that rather than piecemeal welfare state that we created with medicare and medicaid and a handful of great society programs that then of course got racially scapegoated and then limited and and slashed to the bone and are constantly under attack that we would have probably had a chance of expanding the contours of social democracy that had begun in a very racialized way to be expanded during the new deal i think we could have seen for instance that those programs that white folks loved, loved as long as they were just benefiting us and people like us, could have expanded had we not been essentially derailed and detoured from that path by racism and white supremacy in reaction to the civil rights movement. So if we had come to the realization that, oh, this racism thing hurts us, we could have built on the foundation of social democracy that had begun to be laid, albeit in very racialized terms. But unfortunately, we didn't. And so for the last half century, it's been this rear guard action to maintain even the piecemeal stuff that we have today. So I think had we done that, had we created that scaffolding rooted in a sense of collective need, then we would have a public health infrastructure that would be very different than what we have now. We would have healthcare that would be very different. We would have labor policies that wouldn't force people to choose between their health and their income. And so I think we can really say that in a lot of ways, most of the pain that working class white people experience in the last 50 years, for instance, could have been not completely avoided because even if you have a social democracy, you're going to have people in pain sometimes. But I think a lot of that pain would have been mitigated because almost all of it traces to the things that we didn't do and the things that we didn't do we didn't do almost entirely because of white supremacy
2: what did we learn on this installment of the truth reports white privilege is lethal of course it hurts non-white people but is exemplified by donald trump's vile incompetent and willful sabotage of the country's response to the coronavirus pandemic. At least 40,000 Americans are now dead and many more will die because white privilege keeps the incompetent king emperor cult leader, Donald Trump, in power. White privilege creates a type of narcissistic fragility and all the resulting outcomes and errors in cognition, reasoning, overall thinking, ethics, morals, and behavior. This narcissistic fragility and its impact are so great that even basic common-sense steps to protect public health during the coronavirus are viewed as somehow being infringements on white Americans' quote-unquote freedom. Crisis is an opportunity for evildoers. While the mainstream news media continues to focus on the superficial and not the systematic failures of America, as revealed by the coronavirus pandemic, white supremacists, Nazis, and other white neo-fascists continue to plot and scheme and engage in acts of violence designed to destroy America's multiracial democracy.
23: I just wanna put in context that the part of these, reducing these protests to just AstroTurf or just you know, uh, extremism is not smart, not accurate, not strategic, and at the same time, it's very important to note and put down that the press and social media, everybody's giving these a lot of oxygen while people attempting to form themselves, whether in these really incredible strike actions we've been talking about or even Piper with the great work they're doing at Harvard or people getting in their cars and driving around Mayor Carchetti's house, uh, you know, is not receiving anywhere near that type of attention. And I think that yeah. that does need to be put in the context for assessing these things. But um, I don't know if we, I think we have some sound to play for this stuff, but Joshua, I, I basically want to throw to you um, to kind of talk about how do we respond and think about the, the get back to work, protests.
4: Yeah, I love the way you teed that up. And let's circle back to both the media attention piece and the amount, you know, because these things are not bigger than the protests that are happening responsibly that are being done with like social distancing in every, you know, every city in the country around everything from, um, you know, rent to getting unhoused people housed in vacant hotel rooms to, you know, like, so let's mark that, and then also I want to mark the way you're comp, you know, complicating the notion the notion of astroturfing, because uh, the way we dichotomize grassroots and astroturfing is is often not useful. But you know, uh, one of the reasons why I was interested in talking about this is that most of the left media reactions that I've seen have just been outrage at the protesters. And I want to start just by, you know, offering some compassion to that reaction, because that was, you know, part of my reaction at first, too, when I was seeing like, proud boys blocking ambulances, I was pissed off, you know, and like, when I would see, you know, and I, I had a moment of reducing, like, you know, who are these assholes who are like coming to like downtown, you know, to state houses and facilitating the spread of a virus that they claim to not believe in, that is then going to disproportionately impact people who live downtown and they're going to go back home and like there's, you know, and I think about people, there's actually um, a doctor who I met who, because he's a patron of this show, Dr. Osgood, who uh, reached out to me on Instagram because he, he's a watcher of the show and i was thinking about you know some of his posts where he's he's talking about what it's like to be a doctor right now where he just says like too much death can't clean it off like uh, there's real con- immediate short term consequences to these protests and so i i i also don't want to um i understand the reaction of anger is what i'm saying that stated <laughs> if we no, stay that's there that's important
23: that's important yeah. yep
4: yeah, that's the, if, if we stay there and don't actually have compassion for uh, and empathy for people who are coming out to these protests, then we don't have a basis of curiosity. And if we don't have a basis of curiosity, then we can't assess our terrain and uh, can't actually look at the landscape with clear eyes. And so as an organizer, I think about these in... in I break it down in a couple ways and we can kind of walk through it. I think first, who's organizing this and how is it resourced? Then who is the base that the organizers are able to mobilize? And in, in this case, as well as many other cases, it's a mixed base. It's heterodox. It's not just one thing reducible to a stereotype. Then I ask, what are the conditions that allow this base to be mobilized? And where is there an opportunity for us on the left? Uh, and then I ask, what's the architecture of the tactical execution of it? What can we learn from that? And then what's the strategy behind that? And what does that say about, uh, in this case, the relationship between popular mobilization and um, political parties? Because one of the things that has always fascinated me is that the right doesn't do street mobilizations very often, Um, not nearly as often as the left, because that's a tool of people power when you don't have money. The right usually, uh, you know, Uh, exerts its political will in other ways. But when they do, there's always an inside outside strategy behind it that has an electoral relationship with people in power, uh, and people who are funding it. And that's why there's uh, the comparisons to the Tea Party are useful. Um, And that's why the the accusations of astroturfing, let's start there in the question of who's organizing it, which is, you know, um, and, and let me also just give the caveat that I usually don't comment on uh, street protests or tactics unless I'm like physically a part of it uh, or get to see it firsthand. And this I'm obviously observing secondhand. So I'm sure there's even more complexity than I'm able to see. And so I want to just also acknowledge that. But from what I can tell, uh, a lot of this was seeded, uh, of course, by the DeVos family through the Michigan Freedom Fund. And so um, just because they're funding it doesn't mean there's a, there's a distinction between You know, a lot of protests on the left um, have paid professional organizers involved as well. That doesn't mean that they're not legitimately mobilizing a grassroots base. It just means some people get to dedicate their resources full time to mobilizing that base. Right. There's a difference between, you know, when the right accuses us of that, they assume every protester who's there is paid to be there. And they're not there out of authentic concerns. And I think it's lazy for us to imagine that all of these protesters are like somehow paid by the DeVos family to be there. That's just no, there's no way that's possibly the case. Um, but uh you ask who, you know, from from what I can tell, yeah, is there some of this base that is like, you know, suburban crybabies who can't handle a little bit of compromise of their personal comfort with no sense of collective responsibility or sacrifice. Sure. That's, that's like obviously a part of this base. And like, what are the conditions that give rise to that? You know, any basic analysis of privilege and the like little bubble of snowflake republicanism can explain that. That's not that interesting to me. And that's where I think most of the left kind of focuses their outrage on because it's so irritating and it is irritating, but There's also, obviously, a large base of people turning out who are working-class people who are legitimately suffering, who don't trust a government that is, on one hand, telling them that it's going to take away their means to make a living, and on the other hand, not giving them a way to sustain themselves, uh, you know, in return for that. And, um, of course, they don't trust the governments to be able to take care of them, and You know, we get frustrated that they might be in a media bubble where the conclusions they draw are that the virus is fake or whatever, but it's a very reasonable reaction to say, you know, what am I going to do right now? You're not going to take care of me, and you're the same ones telling me that I can't take care of myself. Of course, it's going to valorize the, like, you know, I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I want the right to work right now kind of ethos and the conditions that give rise to that are also obvious and one that, you know, ones that the Democrats are clearly not thinking about, which is that you can't pair social restrictions without social support. And so if there isn't a way of providing for people's wages, if there isn't a way for providing people's healthcare, then this is a predictable reaction. And yeah, it might have been seeded by the DeVos family and it's happening earlier in the cycle than it would have otherwise, but if if sheltering in place needs to continue on, it it was going to happen anyway. And actually blaming the DeVos family for this and and deriding it just as uh, AstroTurf is missing the forest for the trees.
24: Just to give our our listeners a a little bit of context, can you tell us what inspired you to write Fantasyland?
9: Yeah, it was a long time uh, simmering or fermenting or choose your verb. In the early 2000s, I I suddenly realized that the kind of openness to, to craziness and preposterousness and falsehoods of all kinds, had had really gotten to a point where it was very different than when i was a kid you know in the 60s and 70s and, and 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 i wondered how that was and what that was i mean partly i was i was motivated by the rise of of uh you know the anti evolution movement in in uh, fundamental fundamentalist christianity but other things as well and you know new aginess and and all kinds of uh violations of what one of my heroes, former New York Senators, Daniel Moynihan, used to say, which was, everyone is entitled to his own um, opinions, but he's not entitled to his own facts. And I really just felt as though it had reached a point of, of worsening that I wanted to figure out why that was and what was going on. And I was writing a novel about the, much of which was set in the 1960s. And, and I thought, well, this may have had something to do with it, What all, all that, you know, that, that believing whatever you wanted about anything became so kind of privileged and allowed in the late sixties and, and early seventies. I thought, Oh, maybe it was there. Maybe it was, that was part of it. And I began doing more reading and more research and realized, yes, I think that was a big part of it, but that it, but the, the as I started, you know, following the threads back in time, I realized, no, this, this is, I, they kept going further. and And I realized that, that, various parts of this what I call fantasy land really have their roots in you know as you said in the introduction in our beginnings in our in our prehistory really before we even before the Europeans left um, you know Europe to come here so so that, that's really how I started it was just like wow America has gotten weird why is that which essentially was
15: function
9: <laughs> and and so I spent you know a couple of years you know giving myself a kind of uh, self-run master's program in American history and American religious history and cultural history and all kinds of things to try to figure it out.
24: Again, full disclosure, I am a total fangirl and I was just enraptured with what you did and, and how you broke it down. Um, and it would have been very easy to stop at the sixties, you know, because we think history begins when we get here. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I really admired how you went, no, 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 let's, let's take a step back and step back and step back, uh, to our, our pre-beginnings, as you say. And I, I guess that leads to the big question of the moment. Did our fantasy land thinking sort of land us here in our, our current pandemic predicament?
9: It certainly helped. It, it is certainly, uh, the predicament we are in. There is the, the virus and the illness exists, and and that's a yes. hard fact. But of course, our, our Fantasyland fantasy land moment, and and Donald Trump, of course, is the lord of fantasy land. Uh, I, I finished fantasy land actually the, the the draft of it before he was even nominated for president, and then he appears as president as the nominee, and then as the president as I'm as I'm revising it as it's being edited as the sort of poster boy uh ultimate poster boy for all that i'm talking about conspiracy theories crazy religion um uh, you know making up your own facts all that he, he comes along so to the degree he's the president and he has this following um of religious people and otherwise who are the the, the you know the the denizens of fantasy land Yes, so he thought, for his own reasons uh, and for a variety of reasons, most many political reasons. Uh, no, I'm just going to pretend this doesn't exist. It's not happening. Let's ignore it. It's going to be great. Only a guy who who was sort of spawned by Fantasyland, and many of whose most fervent uh, followers and constituents are are Fantasylanders. Uh, yeah, naturally. Of course, he he lost us two months of preparing. He he lost the United States federal government and American people two months of proper preparation. I mean, look, just compare us, for instance, to South Korea. At, at a certain point, two months ago, the illness, the disease, the virus existed at the same level in both countries. They they behaved properly and correctly because they're not fantasists. At least the people running the government. And and we didn't and and so yeah uh, the, it, you know throughout the book as you know Leanne I, I talk about this thing that Thomas Jefferson said in in his uh, what, his best book actually that he wrote in seventeen the seventeen eighties about religion in America and he said you know I don't care if my neighbor believes in no God or twenty gods as long as it doesn't pick my pocket or break my leg well here's an example where lack of Belief in empirical reality, if it is inconvenient or unpleasant to you, has led to a lots of legs being broken and pockets being picked, which is to say many, many more thousands of Americans are going to die uh, in this in this pandemic than would have had to if it were not for American fantasy land.
24: Agreed. And I, I guess coming off of that is, and maybe I'm being hopeful here, but is this is this pandemic as serious as as it is something that can actually wake up enough people from fantasy land thinking?
9: Well, that is the that is that is the sixty four gazillion dollar question. Uh, <laughs> yes, I, 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 I'm hopeful, but you know, I, I've been hopeful before. I, I was hopeful that the financial crisis and crash and meltdown and recession of two thousand eight two thousand nine was going to be a wake up call. I wrote a little book about. That that with that hope, now you know that's different, and and this, in its ultimate social cultural impact, will dwarf, I think, the the the, the, the financial crisis and 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 what happened then. So I'm hopeful that it will. That that you know, I I, I what I think it can do more than making people wake up from fantasy land, because I, I, I think that's a hard. I think that's a harder problem to cure than the, mm-hmm. the 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 kind of adjacent connective problems of 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 bad governance and and electing bad presidents and bad members of congress who believe in all kinds of craziness. Um, uh, I think it can have that effect. In terms of, of making some new majority of Americans say, by golly You know, empirical reality, we should stick to that and we should stick to science and that whole anti-science thing I was into no more. I I, I have my doubts that it will have that effect. I I think what it can do, however, is mobilize and galvanize those of us who do believe in science and 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 something like objective, if not objective, empirical reality and take control of the of the. Culture and and the political world uh, again, as 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 we of of left and right and but the reality based community used to be in charge, and so I think it can have that effect of of but it but that requires you know that requires politics. I think the turning the world upside down. I do I can imagine that that good will come from that. Yes, I do. I I, I don't think. Uh, that the lunatics will suddenly be rendered sane. However,
24: <laughs> well put, well put, and I, I'm glad to hear that you have some hope. Uh, I know I, I too, uh, you know, I scroll Twitter, which is not the healthiest thing yeah. to do, but they Twitter has its moments. When you know Dr. Fauci was missing from the press briefings, the White House press briefings for a couple of days, it, it felt like sane America went mad. Like, where's our Dr. Fauci? (laughs) Where's Fauci was trending on Twitter, which uh, although Twitter is a much smaller, you know, medium than say Facebook, although it was happening on Facebook as well. It it said to me that there were people who were thirsting for real knowledge and real information and not the circus that we've been treated to.
9: You know, I've never been a big Andrew Cuomo fan being a New Yorker, but you know, I voted for him. He's okay. He's has all his pro- obvious problems, but among other things, among the other ways he's being a, a great and inspiring leader through this in his daily briefings, is is how fact-based they are. He gives you the numbers. Yes. He shows you the charts. He explains complicated epidemiological facts. And and my God, what, what a pleasure that is, as opposed to the president and his, you know, his little sycophant, the vice president, in in, term, in their briefing. So, so yeah, there 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 is hope, but yeah, in terms of of, of reality and denial of reality, we, we you know we've seen the president go from no, no, it's not going, it's going to be done by April first. It's we're good. It's not going to be a thing. The market's going to, we're going to all be out. You know, celebrating together in Easter, all that stuff. Well, the fact that he, at least for the moment, changed that. Big lie to another big lie, which is that he, uh, you know, no, he's he's never he's never downplayed the seriousness of this. Abyss. He's always been uh, <laughs> from the beginning. He, he he was trying. He understood how how what a what a terrible crisis it was. Well, I would be, I would rather have him be telling that big lie and, and pushing that fantasy than the fantasy that this pandemic is nothing to worry about. You know, so that's where we are. It's the choice of. Which giant fantasy and lie do we prefer? Well, I guess the one that accords more with, with at least the present day reality that can save lives.
24: That's where we are now. <laughs> We're choosing our fantasies. With, with, with this guy,
9: that's exactly
6: where we are. Yeah.
24: I guess, and, and you've talked about this in your book, how amazing it is that you can have people watching perhaps the exact same coverage or the exact same speech. And still walking away in their own little bubble, like what they've said, what's been said, is just vindicates their opinion, and they are unmoved. And it's almost like these two camps—and I'm simplifying, of course—these two camps, you know, will will use the same information to bludgeon each other. Yeah. Why do we keep doing this?
9: Partly, it's because I mean a lot of reasons. That's part of, as you know, what I wrote this book to try to figure out. I mean. In the early 2000s, 2002, back when the sane and rational um, uh, Republicans were were running the country, Karl Rove, George W. Bush's mastermind, made his famous statement, anonymous at the time, but it was he, about how um, uh, he was uh, making fun of the reporter for being a member of the reality-based community. He coined that phrase and said, we control reality now. We control how people understand the facts or not. Uh, in their evil genius way, they, they used that very thing that again had its roots in, in American history and had its roots in, of all places, the 1960s and the counterculture when, you know, do your own thing, find your own truth became a kind of countercultural idea and then became an American idea even more than it had always been. And so that's why we are where we are. And you throw the internet into that where and and cable television and and all of the new technologies of information and misinformation delivery into the mix. I mean, we, we always believe what we believe and have our own opinion, but it was never so reinforced by both this kind of subjective, I can believe my own truth and I don't need experts or I don't need science. And it's just whatever I feel is true is true, combined with the ability by a Cable television and, and, and the internet to have your own bubble reinforced as it has never been able to be reinforced before. That's what got us here. And again, it's not inevitable. I mean, the United States is different. I mean, you know, in the rest of the world, they have the same technologies, yet they do not suffer from the same, uh, kind of mass polarized versions of reality to the extent we do here.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with On the Media, exploring Trump's propaganda campaign to rewrite history. Deconstructed discussed the straight line from Trump's inaction to the death of thousands of citizens. Democracy Now! discussed the New York Times article about what Trump knew and when he knew it. Frontline also explored the warnings the White House got. The Bugle explained how Trump keeps getting away with everything and how slavery explains everything strange in America. The Al Franken Show had on Michael Lewis to discuss his research into Trump's total disregard for and disinterest in running the federal government. Democracy Now! explained why Trump cutting funding to the World Health Organization is a crime against humanity. The Bugle debated the leadership styles between the US and the UK. The Chauncey DeVega show talked with Jared Yates Sexton about his upbringing in a far right environment that he came to understand as a cult. Deconstructed looked at the interplay between Trump, his base, and Fox News. Chauncey DeVega spoke with Tim Wise about the role of white supremacy in keeping us unprepared in the face of basically any problem and especially a pandemic. The Michael Brooks Show discussed the underlying motives of the Reopen America protests. And finally, we just heard Point of Inquiry talk with Kurt Anderson about his book Fantasyland as a frame for explaining the deep disconnectedness from reality so many Americans suffer from. Members will be hearing a bit more, for instance, uh, about the legal argument for Trump being uh, guilty of involuntary manslaughter for gross negligence and more analysis of the reopen America protesters and the dynamics of left wing versus right wing protests, which I got to say, I found out absolutely fascinating it's a really interesting look at at the the difference between not just how the media will give the same amount of coverage to 20 you know, Tea Party protesters at a Denny's as they give to 400,000 climate protesters. It's not just the media, but also the political hierarchy and how they respond to it and how that creates a whole feedback system in completely different ways between the left and the right. So, members are going to be hearing all about that. To hear that, and all of our bonus content, which also includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode. Sign up as a patron of the show at Patreon.com/slash left. And the one little note I want to throw in here, just I, I find it um, an interesting production quandary. I found myself in. I've never used a clip from Al Franken since he was senator so he was in the senate he left the senate under a cloud of you know sexual misconduct allegations and photographic evidence of him just being sort of like lewd and gross and and you know they were uh, relatively tame compared to what other people have done but at the same time there why have any tolerance for that sort of stuff. So anyways, he he was uh, pushed out of the Senate by his Democratic colleagues. And, th- and then he he restarted the Al Franken show, which he did, you know, 15 years ago, I used to listen to the Al Franken show on Air America radio. And so, you know, I checked out his podcast just to see how he was holding up. And I didn't expect to, to play any clips from because Whatever he's talking about, I'm sure I can find elsewhere and and no one has to feel like this person who doesn't deserve to be supported anymore uh, is is being supported and then i I heard the interview with Michael Lewis that that you heard on the show today, and I thought, okay great, so Michael Lewis wrote a book. It's very interesting it It relates to this situation. Maybe I'll go find an interview he did somewhere else to talk about the pandemic and Trump's response to it. And maybe I could just use a different show instead of the Al Franken show. I searched the entire Apple podcast library for Michael Lewis. And Al Franken was literally the only person I could find who interviewed him within the last like six months or so, you know, I mean, maybe more, but for our current situation, for sure. So I was like, okay. I mean, it's an excellent interview with excellent insights, unique perspective, and I can't find it literally anywhere else uh, other than the the Al Franken show. So I guess I'm going to use it. So if if you if you heard that and thought, ah, oh, Jay, what are you doing? Why are you using this? Now you know the uh, the inner workings of my thoughts on uh, that situation, and just know that I took all that into consideration. Okay, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can send us a voice memo by email or simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook. To help others find the show, for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you as often as I am able to give them to you, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.